Exodus 12, starting in verse 40, and we'll read 40 through 42. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt, so that this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. May God bless the reading of his word. I'm of uh, prayer before we get started in our scripture today. Father God, we humble our hearts before you. God, we ask that you will open up to us the meaning and the application of Exodus 12 and 13, Father. They happened so long ago that our eyes are dim and veiled in how we can see how they apply to our lives. So, Father, I just ask for humility in our hearts, Lord, that we will come to you for the life-giving word of the water that will be washed and cleansed, Father, and made ready to obey you even more. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Whether we know it or not, memorials wield great significance in our daily life. What we remember, what we choose to remember, and how we choose to remember it all impacts how we interpret our daily experience and even sets our future anticipation. So I just want you to think of a couple of uh, memorials that we have as Americans. Think of Pearl Harbor, for example. Or think of the Holocaust Museum. Or 9-11 and the place that these memorials hold in interpreting our own lives as a as a people group, as a people who have a history and expectations and hopes and anticipations. Or think of the significance of the Lincoln Memorial or Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial and the lives of those who cherish equality and freedom. Imagine what it must be like, for example, to walk through and see images of a man who made the Emancipation Proclamation saying that there's now no slavery in the States. And how knowing that is the the way that slavery was abolished. Just think of how that tells us who we currently are and our future anticipations that all forms of slavery are gone forever. These memorials are important in the way that we remember them. Why we remember them. How we remember them. But this principle extends far beyond any political memorials, any national memorials, any other types of memorials we tend to look at. This principle applies to the memorials of Scripture more than anything. Whenever a memorial day or a memorial site is consecrated in the Bible, it is for the people of God to remember the work that God has done the redemptive work that God has done, as well as to think about the work that God is doing in our lives, and to anticipate and hope for the work that God will do. There's a backwards, a present, and a forwards aspect to the memorials in the Bible. God wants us to remember what has been, what is, and what will be. He wants us to remember that He has been faithful, is being faithful, and will be faithful. This is why Exodus 11 and 12 And 13 are so important. Though the Passover memorials were given long before our time, that which was given to the Israelites then serves as instructions for us now, today. Namely, 
God's intentions and commands for his people to remember the Passover teaches that we honor the Lord by remembering his redemptive work and structuring our lives accordingly. We honor the Lord as we memorialize that which he has done. Just before the final plague, Yahweh instructed his people to remember the day as a memorial day throughout your generations and as a statute forever, Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. And this is interesting because when he told his people that he expected them to remember the Passover day, he told them that they would celebrate it before the final stroke even fell, before the final plague even happened, before it even came, God anticipated and expected victory and told his people to remember the victory he was about to work. It wasn't a, a maybe if my work gets completed. It wasn't a, a just in case it gets completed. It was a when my redemptive work is completed, you must remember it. God has complete sovereignty. And he knew that Israel would be free and he wanted them to understand from the outset, from the beginning, before Pharaoh's declaration even happened, that they were not free because Pharaoh said so. They were free because the sovereign God who made his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob said so. No word of Pharaoh set the captives free. It was the word of God. The people didn't go free because Pharaoh relented. The people went free because God is faithful in redemption. Exodus chapter 20, chapter 12, verse 40 and 41 highlight the fact that Israel had lived there 430 years. Now, if you're thinking about numbers and their significance in the Bible, then you're thinking about the time in Genesis uh, chapter 15 that God told his people that they would be afflicted in Egypt for 400 years. Now, some people see the discrepancy between 400 and 430. I think it's more of a symbolic number, more of a rounding up. But the point is that after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, the people of God go free just as he said that they would. That number's significant. Now, having seen that God had powerfully worked on their behalf, it's only fitting that they'll remember his work. Look at what it says in verse 42. It, this night, this Passover night, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. One way to understand this is Israel kept, got the Lord Yahweh kept Israel that night. Now what must Israel do? They must keep the Passover to the Lord. He watched over them. Now they must watch him for generations to come. But even another way, he had worked his redemption. Now it was their task to remember his redemption. Now, As a pastor, people come to me all the time and they ask me, I get this question all the time, especially in talking so much about God's sovereignty. What role do we play in redemption? What role do we play in redemption? And sometimes when people hear my answer to it, people walk away sad because they didn't get to play a larger part, a larger role in their redemption. But I think there's great beauty in considering the parallels between Israel's role in redemption and our role in redemption. Let's just think about it. Israel did not redeem itself, did it? Israel did not set itself free, did it? 
Israel was as helpless as slaves kept in bondage. We are as helpless as dead people kept in sin and slavery to our trespasses. Absolutely helpless, enslaved to sin, Satan, and death. It was the plagues of God. It was the strokes of God on Egypt. God's hand, God's mighty hand that brought Israel out of Egypt. In what way are we saved? And are we saved in any different way than by God's strong, mighty hand? It's no coincidence at all that when Mary and her Magnificat, Christmas is coming, so you guys got to read the Magnificat, um, that Mary and her Magnificat, her song in Luke 2, describes Jesus' coming as the extending arm of the Lord, the hand of God. What do you think she's making connections to? That God's about to work in a way similar to, to the way he did in Exodus by giving Jesus. So, Israel, what was their role in their own redemption? Well, sure, they believed and they had faith and they obeyed. But in particular, their role in their own redemption was to remember that they had been redeemed. My friends, what is our role in redemption? What part do we play? We're those who remember. You have a very big part to play in your own redemption. Now, sure, you do not redeem yourself. You do not save yourself. You do not atone for yourself. You don't work your way into heaven. But your gigantic, huge part to play is you remember the one who did. That's a huge part. Let no one be sad that we don't play a bigger role. Let's be grateful that we get to remember. Let's be grateful that we're the ones that are able to look back and see the Passover lamb who died so that we wouldn't have to die ourselves. My friends, you do not want a larger part in redemption because that would have been your blood on the streets. You don't want a larger part in redemption because that would have been your cross. You don't want a larger part in redemption because those are your nails and your crown of thorns, your whips and lashes, the wrath of God poured out on you, God forsaking you. You don't want a larger part in redemption. Let us be grateful for the part we do play, that the one who has borne all those things for us and carried them for us so that we might be saved and remember. Let's bask in the beauty of that. So to be faithful people of God, there's one thing that we'll see today. Be faithful, mature Christians, New Testament believers. We must be people who remember actively what God has done. There are three memorials given in Exodus 13 through 12. Now, honestly, most of us, we get our chronological Bible studies going. We get our read through the Bible in the year going. And we always kind of, we get to 12 and 13. There's, there's two or three places that we kind of stumble up on on our daily reading. One of those is the Chronicles. Um, I mean, anybody else? Is that just me? Okay. Okay. Well, that fine. Maybe not you, but me. Um, I get to Exodus 13 and 14 and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, here comes all these rules about the Passover. I just immediately am like, okay, can we fast forward this? There's three memorials that God gives. And I think if we read the memorials carefully, I think read them with a gospel-centered lens, read them with Christological, Christ-colored glasses, and you begin just to see how beautiful these sections of text that we claim boring are actually amazing and powerful. 
So there's three feasts, three memorials. Passover feast itself. We're going to see that in verses 43 to 51. The feast of unleavened bread, 13, uh, chapter 13, verses 3 to 10. And then the firstborn redemption, chapter 13, 1 and 2. And then it picks back up in 11, all the way down to 16. Now, in each of these memorials, God's going to show his uh, and remind his people of his redemptive work in a unique and distinct way. So let's jump in with the Passover feast. If you remember in Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, that when the Israelites left Egypt, they were not all Israelites. They were a mixed multitude, which means these are not all the people of God. Put bluntly, there are people here who are just coming into the scene. They don't know about Abraham. They don't know about the promises. They don't know about Genesis 3.15 and an offspring coming to crush the head of the serpent. They don't know that God has promised an offspring who will bring blessing to the whole world. These are outsiders that are walking with the insiders. Right? These are people who have yet to actually been brought into the covenant people of God. They're a mixed multitude. And so, in that light, verses 43 and 49 make absolute sense. In verses 43 and 49, we, we find, just like there is true of all Scripture, there's an inside and outside of God's people. Us moderns hate that, right? We like inclusivity. Let it, there should be no inside or outside, and I love the memes that say, then take down your door. Absolutely. I think you should do that. If you don't think there's an inside and outside of God's people, then there's not an inside or outside of your house. There's not an inside or outside of your family. Why would the family of God not have an inside and an outside to it? It makes absolute sense to me. And we find that, especially in 43 through 49, God, God says specifically... Verse 43, this statute of the, uh, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. No foreigner. Okay, God, didn't you, okay, you're giving us this Passover, and you just said that this mixed multitude who are filled with foreigners cannot eat of it. Well, why the exclusivity? Why could not just anyone take the Passover? God gave his command specifically. Because the Passover commemorated God's covenant work for his covenant people. And therefore, anyone outside of the covenant was not to enjoy the covenant meal. It's a lot of covenant, isn't it? I I, I hope if there's one thing I want to do, it's reintroduce biblical words to us. They're not archaic. They're not antiquated. They're not out of date. They're beautiful. The church needs to get accustomed with words like propitiation again. It's there. The church needs to get accustomed with words like covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a promise of God promising his relationship with his people. It's a beautiful word. It's like a marriage contract where God comes in and says, I am going to be with you. It's a beautiful word. And he wants his covenant people, his covenant children, to enjoy this covenant meal specifically. Now, God's promises and God's covenant blessings, get ready to hear this because it's hard, are exclusively for his covenant people. God's covenant promises and his covenant blessings are exclusively for his covenant people. 
My friends, we're not universalists because we don't believe that anything that God has given us is inclusive in the sense that it's just freely given to anyone despite what they believe or despite what they're, what they come in grounds of. It's the same way that the, that the Passover itself was not inclusive. It was whoever had the blood over the door that was passed over. Not just people who liked the idea of it. Not just people who had a, had a pet lamb. It was people who actually slaughtered the lamb, had faith, and put blood on the door. The gospel is not inclusive. Church is not inclusive. The covenants of God are not inclusive. Meaning that it's not just for anyone, regardless of what they believe. That's universalism. We realize that, right? Where we say eventually everyone's going to be saved regardless of what they believe. Eventually God's going to let anyone to heaven regardless of what they believe. It's so contrary to everything we see. The Passover is not inclusive, but it is invitational. It's not inclusive, but it is invitational. He specifically specifically says, no foreigner and no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Well, what's the solution then? Act in faith and get circumcised. Join the people of God. Put your faith in Yahweh. If you remember what circumcision is in Genesis, it's this act, this covenant sign that God has given his people that they are now putting actively, putting their faith in God's promises. This is a trust of Yahweh. It's a declaration of loyalty to God and his promises. And so it doesn't make sense that anyone who would have faith in the Egyptian gods should be able to enjoy a meal given to them by the one and only God. They must leave behind the Egyptian gods. They must leave behind their preconceived notions. And they must not think, oh, now we're in the people of God simply because we left Egypt. That's not it. They only become the people of God when they act in faith. They only become the people of God when they act in faith. You are not a Christian because you are sitting where you are right now. You are not a Christian because you know Christians. You are not a Christian because you own a Bible. You are not a Christian because you speak like a Christian and have Christian t-shirts. You are not a Christian because you go to all the Christian movies. You are not a Christian because you have Christian tennis shoes with Jesus Ichthus on your shoelaces. Why are we Christians? By faith. And faith alone. It's very exclusive, isn't it? I'm sure there are people who are calling Noah exclusive because there's only one door into the ark. I'm sure God's being exclusive because there was only one means to be saved in Egypt that night. And in the same way, the gospel is so exclusive in that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. It's by faith, my friends. We may not like the words exclusivity. We might want to bring people in. That's absolutely good and right. We should want people to come in, but they must come in by the right way and only way that God has given They can't hop the fence, walk through a wall, or anything like that. They must come through the door. And what's the door? Faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the covenant's saying here. They must act in faith, getting circumcised, 
and then they may enjoy the benefits of being in the people of God. They cannot belong to the people of God before they believe in Jesus. This whole idea of belong before you believe is a dangerous, deadly, unscriptural doctrine. You can be loved before you believe, but you cannot belong until you're adopted through faith in Jesus Christ. It's an exclusive gospel. Now, one thing is absolutely clear. In this invitation, as the foreigners are coming, they're watching this Passover meal happen. They're watching the blood run down the the streets, and they're asking, what in the world's going on? This is a prime opportunity for the Passover to become evangelistic. You see this? As foreigners and strangers are coming into Jerusalem, they're watching the blood run. What a a great opportunity to explain to them why. And you can have the same peace and joy and celebrate in the same way. Now, the Israelites were to obey even the strictest rules. And and some of these rules, we don't understand quite why they were given. I'll give you an example. Buried in the midst of all this instruction, you find in verse 46, you shall not break any of its bones. Sometimes God puts pegs into his scriptures just so that he can come back to them and hang something on it later. Sometimes God puts hooks in the things just so that when he comes back to it, you'll understand why it was there. Why was the Passover lamb not to have any bones that were broken? To designate it as a sacrifice? Well, sure, that's probably part of it. But specifically, so that when we hear the words in John 19, for these took place that scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. What is he trying to do? That's a peg right now in Exodus 12 that God has nailed into the wall. He says, I'm going to come back to it. I'm going to hang something on it later. And he comes back and he hangs Jesus on the cross on it. He says, this is your Passover lamb, people, whose bones have not been broken. So as much as we don't understand the narrowness and the exclusivity and the strict rules that God gives his people for the Passover, he's very intentional. By obeying these rules, they're pointing forward to the Messiah who's to come. There's a lot of rules when it comes to God's people. I mean, there's God's household. He has household rules. How many of you had household rules when you had kids? How many of you still have household rules even though you don't have kids, particularly for your husbands? Okay, we have rules that I thought were in place just for our kids, and I've been very quickly corrected that those are there until I die. (laughs) Oh, for the day that I can leave glasses on the bar. But God has household rules, and so we come to things like Lord's Supper, and we say, hey, you must be a believer to take Lord's Supper. You must have faith in Jesus Christ. That's a narrow rule, isn't it? Narrow rule, but what does it do? It points people to the one and only door through which they may enter the covenant family of God. Rules are not bad when we do them to point to God. Rules are bad when we do them to be saved. (laughs) That's legalism. But there are some things that we must do and obey in order for people to hear the one true message. We want no one to miss the point. It is by faith and by faith alone that you are saved. And that's exactly what the Passover meal is preparing us for. And we're going to move on. Exodus 13, verses 1 and 2, begin to lay out the firstborn redemption. Um, and then he kind of, the author leaves it, and then he picks it back up later in verse 11. So we're just going to jump ahead to verse 3 and start with the feast of the unleavened bread. And here's what he says in verse 3. 
Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread should be eaten. Once again, God anticipates the day that they're going to come into the land. He says, when you get into the land, you shall observe this feast. It was a symbol. The unleavened bread was a symbol of faith and anticipation of freedom. That anticipation of freedom is really important. It's as they're carrying these nasty, flat, stale loaves of bread that they're remembering, oh, the Lord effectively saved us by his strong hand. He set us free. They're symbols of freedom, okay? The feast was instructed to be held when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. And we see past and future merging together as God's past promises are merging with future anticipation of God fulfilling those promises. That's what we do anytime we remember something. Anytime we memorialize something, we take something that happened in the past, we memorialize it so it continues to set our future trajectory. That's what he's doing here with this. What is more, this is beautiful, they are preemptively told to teach their future children. Look at what he says in verses 8 and 9. You shall tell your son on that day, it was because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Now that memorial, that that's a sign on your hand and a frontlet between your eyes. We hear it again in Deuteronomy 6, where he tells them that when they rise and when they walk in the streets and when they go to the marketplace, at all times they're to teach their children, listen to how... Deuteronomy 6 ends, you shall bind them, my law, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. What does it show us? Whether it be God's memorials, like the Lord's Supper, Passover, or whether it be God's mandates, like thou shalt not kill, who is responsible to teach children the laws and the works of God? The children's director? Right, that's what we have her here for, right? Make my kids spiritual. The youth pastor? The pastor? No, we see it in Scripture over and over. It is to the parents. From house to house, the parents are responsible to disciple their own children. My friends, what are we doing when we read the scriptures with our kids? What are we doing when we sing worship songs with them? It was great. We were singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We've been singing that in our house for about five years now since Timothy was a baby was when he first sung that song. And he stood up because I know this one. What are we doing when we sing songs with them, pray with them, catechize them in the gospel? We're doing the same thing the Israelites are told to do when they enter the land. You will teach your children these things. My friends, remembering the Lord's redemption did not rest on Moses. It did not rest on Aaron. It did not rest on the priest. It it rested firmly on the parents. When it comes to keeping the memory of what God has done alive, it is not on us, but on you. As parents, 
I will stand before the throne of God and receive judgment for the way I taught his household. But only the fathers and the mothers will stand before God and give an account for the way they taught their kids. Those are your sheep. And God has called you to make disciples of them. Called you to help you remember them. And they watch. It's amazing how they watch. And they learn and they ask questions. My son asked today if he could take the Jesus meal. He's watched us do it many times uh, as a church. He's giggled through the crunching of the crackers. He's heard me talk about what it's for. And I said, not yet, son. We're going to make sure you understand well. We're going to make sure that you understand why we take it. And what ends up happening is after we get home, we end up walking him through. And okay, Timothy, what is what do you think that the 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 juice symbolizes? Why do we why do we eat the bread? What did Jesus do for us? And what's cool is he's beginning to answer these questions little by little. He's beginning to understand. He's watching and he's learning. How does he even know what a Jesus meal is? Because he watches his dad take it. And I take it reverently. My son knows that when it's Sunday, it's church day. When we get ready for school on Monday, we grab our backpacks. When we get ready for church on Sunday, we grab our Bibles. I don't even have to tell him to anymore. Why? Because he watches. He watches. I took a bite of my meal the other day. We do family worship at our meal table. Because it's easy. We're already gathered. The kids are strapped in. They can't go anywhere. Um, so we just pull out our picture Bible and we're having food. So they don't sit still, you know, when we go into the living room. So maybe they'll sit still strapped in eating a, I don't know, uh, the good food that Rachel makes, a turkey boner or something. Um, so they're sitting there, they're eating and we read and we sing and we pray. And I remember there's one time the food just looks so good and Rachel was cooking it on the stove and we, we never, never start eating until we start, we sing, um, uh, before, uh, what was the song we sing? The doxology. That's right. I should know that. We start singing the doxology. That's how we started off. And then we pray. And then we eat. And then we read scripture. And I just remember there's one that is sitting there right in front of me. Rachel's finishing cooking. And she's got a couple of dishes she's trying to bring out. And I'm just like, I start, Timothy, Timothy, slap the fork out of my hand and said, Dad, we haven't thanked God yet. That's what you want. Your kids watch from you. Your kids learn from you. They watch. You want them to be able to correct you when you don't do it the way you've taught them. What is a great blessing in my life is when my son thinks it's strange that he doesn't see me sitting in my office with my Bible open. I don't want him to learn because it's legalistic. But this is how daddy lives his life. This is where daddy comes for water. My son, you like to play. You've got a gentle and loving and kind father. Great. Let me tell you how that happens. I know it's important to play in the floor with you and to pray with you and to read books to you and to read the Bible to you and to teach you about communion. Why? Because I learn it from an even better father. Friends, this has been true for all time, all the way back to Passover, all the way back to the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It is to parents to teach their kids 
My friends, church doesn't begin on Sunday in the church building. It begins on Monday night in your home. That's where church begins. This is just a continuation of the worship. And an anticipation of the worship to come. Not trying to convict anyone. I'm, I'm one of the ones that I, it's easy for me to skip family worship. I think we did it, what, three times this week? We try not to beat ourselves down by how little or how much we do. We try not to boast in how much we do it. That's for sure. But the fact that you're trying should be a good thing. When was the last time your kids heard the name Jesus from your lips? When was the last time they heard you say, let us pray? When was the last time they heard you sing? I don't like to sing. It doesn't matter. When was the last time they heard you sing? When was the last time they saw you get excited about joining the people of God? My friends, that is how the faith is passed on. The greatest hindrance to the future of Christendom is not that the Democrats are taking over the House or that the Republicans still have the Senate. The greatest danger to future Christendom is that we are forgetful people. Christians are forgetful people. The greatest hindrance, your children will not be walking with Jesus, not because of who sits on the political seat. If they don't walk with Jesus, it will be ultimately because we haven't taught them how to. Now, I can't control if my children believe in Jesus or not. That's not my job to save them. But they should leave my house knowing absolutely well what the gospel is. I have 18 years to instill to them the truths If they believe it, praise God. If they don't, I will pray it until I die that they do. But my children, Lord willing, if God saves them, they will follow the Lord because I helped it to happen, not because we have the right people in Senate and House and Presidency. I mean, we are ultimately talking about people who were told on the way out of Egypt, on a way to a war, teach your kids. Dad's coming back with his sword, his tunics all torn torn from where the Canaanites tried to shoot him through an arrow. Okay, kids, we're going to sit down and do family worship today. Man, I'm convicted. I better stop. The third memorial God gave his people is the firstborn redemption. The instructions for this memorial began in uh, chapter 13, 1 through 2. And the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the firstborn to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast is mine. And so here's what you end up seeing. Just to summarize it real concisely. Whatever was firstborn, the firstborn son, a firstborn from the lamb, anything but the firstborn donkey. A firstborn donkey could be substituted for a lamb as unclean, Okay. But basically what's happened is every time somebody has their firstborn, a sacrifice is made. A sacrifice is made. Now, I don't know about you, but births happen all the time. All the time. Whether it's, imagine you're, you're walking through your field and boom, there's a baby lamb for the first time from this sheep that you've had. You walk through and boom, there's a baby calf. And next thing you know, Aunt, Aunt Jemima has had her baby, and praise God, it's her firstborn. And guess what's happening all the time? Sacrifice, redemption. And what's ended up happening? Redemption is rehearsed again and again and again. If you're wondering why I said Aunt Jemima, I wanted pancakes this morning. 
So I was thinking about syrup. So just lay in my brain. But redemption is happening. So quit wondering why I said Jemima. Um, sacrifice is happening every time a firstborn is made. Every time firstborn is born. Day in and day out, day in and day out, redemption, blood, redemption, blood. And guess what the people of God are remembering? It was by the redemption of a lamb that we were saved. That's how frequent. That's how occasional. That's how it just be a rhythm of life for us. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Christ actually fulfills all three of these mills, all three of these memorials. And they're still active in our lives today. Um, for those of us that think these instructions were for them, they're absolutely not for us. They're useless to us. That goes against what Paul says in Romans 15 when he says, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. And so when we read Exodus 12 and 13, what does Paul say it was written? Who does Paul say it was written for? For us. For our instruction. So there's two things we're going to see from these three memorial mills. Number one, we're going to see why remembering the Lord's redemption is important. And number two, we're going to see how these memorials have been fulfilled in Christ. So let's look at the first one. There are three primary reasons that we find why Christians should remember. First, remembering redemption reminds us of God's past faithfulness and instills an anticipation of future faithfulness. Just like the Israelites taking the Passover, look backwards to that day in Egypt, but also forwards. If God could do that to the Egyptians, what will God do to the Canaanites? You see, it's a backwards, forwards look. They knew that they would take the land because God had delivered them from Egypt. We do the same thing. We look backwards to the cross. We look forward to his return and to our resurrection. We are filled with hope and anticipation because of what he did in the past. So we remember in Hebrews 10.23, the author tells his people to hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. Then what does he do? He gives them Hebrews 11 so that they'll remember that God had been faithful. And if he'd been faithful with them, he'll be faithful with you. Second, Remembering redemption helps us to better obey God's commands. In chapter 13, verse 9, God says to them about the unleavened bread, and it shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. Why? That the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. In other words, the work of God was to stay in their eyes so the law of God would be in their mouth. The work of God would stay before them so they would stay in obedience. My friends, I, I get this all the time. Uh, as a pastor, people people complain about each other. It's okay. Just a natural life of sinners. Um, I complain about some of you. Um, <laughs> so this is for me too. Um, John chapter 13, right? Jesus says what? To love one another. To love one another. Now that's That's odd. To love weird people, different from us. Love people who don't look like us, think like us, act like us. They don't, they may not even like the same entertainment we do. They may not dress the way that we do. They may not have the same background, but we're to love them. I don't want to love them. They voted differently than me. They're weirder than me. They're more hippies. Right? But what's the motivation? What's the motivation? Here's what he says. Just as I have loved you. 
So you love others. You love one another. It's by remembering, how did Jesus love us? By dying for us, by bleeding for us, by taking sin for us. We should love just like that for others. There are weird people here and you must love them. Why? Because you were the weird people that Jesus loved when he died for you. It's great motivation. We remember the Lord, his body broken, his blood spilt. Carrying a cross is a light thing to love others. Because he has loved the unlovable. Remembering redemption helps us to obey. Third, remembering redemption leads us to be a testimony to others, especially our children. We've already seen how the foreigners were going to watch this and how they weren't be included in it. They were not to be included in the Passover meal, but they were invited into inclusion through circumcision. They're invited to partake. So anytime there's a business meeting from Persia coming into Jerusalem or anytime the Egyptians sent a delegate to check on the Israelites or anytime a Syrian representative came on Passover. He sees the blood running through the streets and it's a testimony. It's evangelistic. Look at what our God has done for us. When did your God do that for you? None, not never. My friends, as we take the Lord's Supper, I am under no doubt that there are non-believers here today. And it's a strange thing what we're about to do with the Lord's Supper, but what a great opportunity for you to hear about the gospel. Watch and learn. Just like my son asking why we take the Lord's Supper. It's going to be a testimony for my kids. It's going to be a testimony for them and their future faithfulness. And so when Jesus tells us to remember him in redemption. We're doing it so others will come to know Yahweh. Now, final point. How has Christ fulfilled these things? I don't think it's any coincidence whatsoever that if you look up Passover, unleavened bread feast, or even the firstborn redemption, that you see the New Testament writers reusing the same language to describe our life. Are we done with Passover? Uh, not really. It's fulfilled. It's fulfilled. We have a new kind of Passover. Are we done with the Feast of Unleavened Bread? No, not according to Paul. And so let's look at each one. First, we have the Passover. Is there any memorial feast that God has given his New Testament church in order that they may remember the day that death passed over them because of the shed blood of a lamb? Is there any memorial feast that they're to eat the flesh and to look at the blood in memory? What's that? Lord's Supper. Is it any coincidence at all that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on a Passover? He took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do what? Do this in remembrance of me. This cup, the juice that we're about to take, the wine that they took, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Passover proclaimed the death of the Passover lamb. The Lord's Supper proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. We're a Passover generation. 
And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're taking a fulfilled Passover meal together. Covenant people coming together, remembering God's redemptive covenant work. But who's allowed to take it? Well, foreigners can take the Passover meal, so can non-believers take the Lord's Supper? It's not what we see from Paul. Paul says that no one take it in an unworthy manner. The Passover was a covenant meal given for God's covenant children. What's any different than the Lord's Supper? See, some people want to take the Lord's Supper because they think it's like a good luck charm. I, if I eat the bread and I drink the juice and I've done my good luck for the day. So it's so important I take the Lord's Supper. I had one person tell me that they didn't believe in Jesus, but they wanted to take the Lord's Supper next time we had so that he could get right with God. Super dangerous doctrine. So the same thing about baptism. My friends, that is not why we do these things. It's not for anyone outside of the covenant children of God. Be comfortable with exclusivity in that sense. Because if you open it up and say it's for everyone, you're automatically telling them there are many ways to salvation. By narrowing it down and saying it's only for the people of God, we have the opportunity to tell them the way, the truth, and the life. Now, in in, uh, Exodus, people are not merely commanded to observe the Passover meal. They're also told to do the Passover sign, which was circumcision. Have we been given a covenant sign? Have we been given a covenant sign? Absolutely, baptism. If you want to see the, the differences and similarities between baptism and circumcision, you just need to look up Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. That those who've been circumcised in their heart, baptized in Christ, right? So we have a covenant meal, the Lord's Supper. And what's our covenant sign? Not circumcision anymore, but baptism. That's how we symbolize what God has done outwardly. The, the covenant sign in the Old Testament was an outward symbol, just as is water baptism. When we put people in the water. We're showing what God has done. I think that's cool. Other people think it's legalistic. And I'm just like, what do you do with the command? Go and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not an option. It's a command. It's not salvific by any means. Any more than circumcision salvific. And we know from Paul that it wasn't. But it is a symbol it is a matter of obedience. What did the apostles say? Repent and be baptized. They didn't say that because you could get saved by it, but they said it because it's expected that you'd be obedient. It's been commanded. It's a matter of obedience. Second, we have the unleavened bread, and I'm going to have to tie up here real soon. The feast commemorated their freedom from Egypt. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul read the Exodus, with Christ-centered glasses. And here's what he said to people who were tolerating sin and in the yoke of slavery again. He said, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Now listen to this. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. What festival? The unleavened bread. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So how do we hold the feast of the unleavened bread now? By living holy lives. The unleavened bread symbolized freedom from Egypt. Our holy lives symbolize freedom from sin. We're called to keep the feast. 
daily. Porn addictions, drug addictions, anger issues, malice, evil, wickedness, greed, contempt, hatred. That's all leaven. And it all symbolizes slavery. So push the leaven out and live free from sin. Finally, we have the firstborn redemption. I don't think I have to tell you that when Jesus is called the firstborn, it doesn't mean he was the first one created. It's a symbol of power and authority. In Psalm 89, 27, it's a kingly title. Colossians 1, 1, chapter 1, verse 15 and 20 say that in, in the sense that it's firstborn of creation, he's ruler of all in the creation. All things came through him and were by him and for him. And then it says he was the firstborn from the dead. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus is called the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth. So how do we have firstborn redemption? Not by sacrificing firstborn animals and sacrificing for our firstborn children anymore. We remember firstborn redemption by remembering the firstborn who redeemed us. He's the firstborn. He's the king of kings. Lord of lords. And he died on the cross so that we might be redeemed. He rose again and he stands as the firstborn redeemer. It's amazing. My friends, there is continuity between the covenants. Old covenant, new covenant coming together. The same sovereign God who delivered his people from Egypt is the same sovereign God who has delivered you from sin. The same people who were called to holiness and to remember God's redemptive work. That's us. Now we have a face with what we're supposed to remember. It's not just an animal. It's not just a lamb. It's not just unleavened bread. It's not just the firstborn. It's a Savior, Jesus Christ. These things were given for our instruction. So my question is, how well are we doing remembering the redemptive work of God? Let's pray. Father God, we just praise you for who you are. God, we thank you that you have redeemed us. And I pray that today as we take the Lord's Supper, that you will help us remember your redemptive work. God, help us to be faithful people who keep the feast because you have kept us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.